Welcome back to the Capstone Project podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Fiedler. Today, we're going to be discussing some community engagement and social issues relating to the North Carolina HIV-positive population, as well as try to analyze some policies surrounding HIV. But first, let's thank a few of our sponsors. Thanks to Crying for supporting the Capstone Project podcast. Crying. You don't know you need to until you face one more minor inconvenience, then suddenly you're in the middle of a Trader Joe's having an absolute meltdown over the fact that they're out of a specific chocolate that you like. And thanks to my mom for supporting the Capstone Project podcast. Not sure if she actually listens to these, but she always responds kindly when I send her the links to the episodes. So thanks, mom. So let's start out by talking about the population that Triad Health Project serves. We touched on this a bit in the past couple episodes, but I really want to do a deeper dive into the HIV-positive population of North Carolina. Before we do that, though, I want to talk about the High Point community in general. So High Point is interesting because of this polarity created by the furniture industry. The High Point furniture market happens twice a year, and it brings a ton of revenue and jobs into the city. So it's super easy to get employment for a few weeks out of the year, and a lot of times folks who work the market get paid in cash, so they don't even have to report the income on their taxes, and they can maintain their unemployment status. However, the market brings millionaires into the city for a short period of time, then they just sort of blow out, not giving High Point a second thought. Twice a year, the community puts all its money and energy into the furniture market, and then the people of High Point go back to the reality of living in an underfunded city. High Point University also brings attention to the city, with the residents and businesses having to accommodate the young adults that live in their community for four years, then move on. Sound familiar? Let's shift gears away from High Point and look at North Carolina's HIV-positive population as a whole. It's estimated that as of 2019, 38,400 people are living with HIV in North Carolina, including an estimated 4,400 people who have HIV but are undiagnosed. 1,383 people were newly diagnosed with HIV in 2019, which is a slight increase from the previous year. 67% of people diagnosed and living with HIV in North Carolina were virally suppressed in 2019, meaning they're less likely to transmit the virus to others and are less likely to experience any symptoms of AIDS. This is really good news, and I'm sure that percentage has increased in the last year with increased medical interventions and increased advocacy by organizations like Triad Health Project. HIV rates in North Carolina are highest among people living in the most impoverished neighborhoods. We discussed this in the previous episode, but just as a refresher, folks living in impoverished areas often have less access to resources, including health resources, and this can result in less viral suppression and increased potential for transmission. In line with Triad Health Project's mission to free the community from HIV and its root causes, the agency collaborates with various organizations in the community in order to provide the best possible care for clients. The services provided by these agencies range anywhere from housing to dental care to emergency financial assistance. Bob's Closet is probably my favorite organization that we refer to clients to. This is a nonprofit that partners with other organizations in the Triad to provide clothing to low-income individuals and their families at no cost. Many clients come to us unable to spare money for clothes, so we take down their sizes and put an order into Bob's Closet. The folks who work there put together a bag of clothes for our client, and we pick them up from the warehouse, which is also available for folks to walk in and shop. Ashley, the organization's coordinator, is truly one of the kindest people I've ever met. I just went there like a week ago and got to talk to her, and she is just absolutely amazing. She is so passionate about the mission and the community that she serves. 
While clothing may not be directly related to HIV, we know from previous episodes that poverty is a risk factor for HIV contraction and disease progression. No one wants to think about taking their medication when they don't even have enough clean clothes to get them through the week. On top of that, it's hard to keep a well-paying job if you can't dress the part. Wearing clean clothing in good condition is also just important when maintaining a positive self-image, which everyone deserves to have. Low self-esteem can lead to depression, which is also a risk factor for treatment non-adherence. I don't think that's actually a word, but we're, we're going to go with it. In order to understand HIV care in not only North Carolina, but in the United States, it is crucial to know about the Ryan White program, which I think I touched on a bit in the first episode. The Ryan White HIV AIDS program was named for a young man who was diagnosed with AIDS after a blood transfusion in 1984. Ryan White was diagnosed when he was only 13 years old, and he was actually, I believe, the first um, kid to be diagnosed with HIV, and he was given six months to live. There wasn't a lot of education or advocacy surrounding HIV at the time, so when Ryan tried to return to school, he fought AIDS-related discrimination in his Indiana community. Ryan became the public face of HIV-AIDS education as he rallied for his right to attend school. He died in April of 1990 after living five years longer than predicted. Congress, just a few months later, passed the legislation bearing his name in August of 1990, the Ryan White Comprehensive AIDS Resources Emergency Act, or the Ryan White Care Act. The Ryan White Care Act funds the Ryan White HIV AIDS program, which is administered by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration, and the HIV AIDS Bureau. It was funded at almost $2.4 billion in the fiscal year of 2020. The program provides comprehensive services for those living with HIV, including HIV primary medical care, essential support services, and medications for low-income folks living with HIV. The program funds grants to states, cities, counties, and local community-based organizations with the goal of improving health outcomes and reducing HIV transmission among underserved populations. So the way our funding works with that, the Ryan White program gives funds to the state of North Carolina, which in turn gives funds to Central Carolina Health Network. CCHN then allocates those funds to community-based organizations that provide services to folks living with HIV, such as Triad Health Project. Through the Ryan White program, THP is able to provide a number of services. The biggest one we provide is through the HIV Medical Assistance Program, or HMAP, which is funded by Part B of the Ryan White program. We're able to assist underinsured and uninsured folks with accessing their medications and adhering to treatment. This critical service is really important to reaching marginalized groups in Guilford County and reducing the spread of HIV in those groups. I also just want to very briefly touch on a couple other pieces of legislation that affect those living with HIV in the United States. So under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 and the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, people are protected from discrimination based on their HIV status. The privacy rule under the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, or HIPAA, protects the privacy of health information, which includes HIV status. This means you do not have to disclose your HIV status to anyone you don't want to, such as employers, although you should disclose it to sexual partners and folks you might be sharing needles with. So the HIV-positive population, specifically that of Guilford County, has consistently been on my mind over the past few months, understandably. I view every topic discussed in every class through the lens of the clients I work with and their struggles, not just my human services classes, but even my global class. I'm viewing it through this lens. Something I consider often is how master statuses come into play. 
If I asked the THP clients to use five identifiers to describe themselves, I really think a lot of them would include their HIV status in those five. Even though we stress that HIV status does not define you in any way, it is a really big part of their lives. And even though I think a lot of people may not consider HIV status a master status because it's kind of an invisible disability when it's just on its own, it affects and is affected by a lot of aspects of a person's life and their place in society. The other master statuses, race, gender, sexuality, etc., all play a role in how a person contracts HIV, how likely they are to contract HIV, and how they interact with their HIV status. For example, we know that black bisexual men are the population most affected by HIV. We learned that in, um, I believe, the first episode. Those master statuses may seem arbitrary when it comes to infectious disease transmission, but unjust societal, economic, and political factors cause the black bisexual male identity itself to be a risk factor for HIV. And I think it's the job of not only human service providers, but of our global community to put an end to the reality that simply being of a certain race, sexuality, gender, economic status, etc., most if not all of which you can't even control, can make you more likely to contract a deadly virus. I know this episode was kind of an info dump and we talked about some pretty heavy stuff, but I think it's so important that we keep this discussion in the forefront of our minds. I feel like the discourse around HIV and its stigma and the ways HIV status intersects with different pieces of identity is just missing from the public eye. We know that a lot of social justice movements these days appear on social media for about a week and then disappear, but I feel like HIV hasn't even really like gotten that week on Instagram. The fact that I didn't know about most of the stuff we discussed in these episodes just a couple months ago really shows the failure of our systems to provide education about a virus that affects millions of people worldwide. And, you know, I'll I'll take some responsibility too. Maybe it was a bit of a personal failure as well. I never even really tried to seek out this information because it was never something that someone posted about on their Instagram story, which of course is not an excuse. But I think we can all do our part to educate ourselves about this issue and reduce stigma surrounding HIV and AIDS so that more people feel comfortable talking about it and getting the care that they need. We know that this stigma hampers prevention and treatment efforts, especially in marginalized communities, and this will not change unless we take global action to reduce the stigma worldwide. While advocacy happening on the community level is incredibly, incredibly important, we also need data-driven government-level interventions that will reduce HIV-related discrimination. That way, community organizations can have the funding and political support that they need to make an even bigger impact than they already are. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I hope you found this episode as informative and interesting as I did while I was doing my research. Um, Stay tuned for our final episode where I will be reflecting on my semester as an intern at Triad Health Project. Have a great day. (music) 